Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Romans uh, 13, 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And so there is clearly a role for government, Paul is describing, in restraining evil. But this role is limited. He says in verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good, for good behavior, but for evil. That is, it's a negative force. It's for the restraint of evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And so there is a very limited role, as Paul explains. The law or the state operates and is legitimate for the Christian, as he says on down in 13, 8 to 10, as it serves the law of love. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. But verse 1, taken as an absolute, if we take it out of the context that I've described here, or out of the context of Romans, it seems to say that whoever the ruler is, God chose them. And whatever they command, whatever they say, well, we're to blindly obey it. Mike Johnson, who was just elected Speaker of the House on being inducted, he appealed. He said, well, I believe in the Bible. And he described the fact that, well, I think that God put me here. And then he described his support for the state of Israel. He says, I believe the scriptures. The Bible is very clear. God is the one that raises up those in authority. He could have been appealing to Romans chapter 1. He said, he raised us up, and I believe that God, he says, has ordained and allowed each one of us to be brought here for this specific moment in time. Then he went on to say, and the first thing I'm going to do is support our dear friend Israel. He says, we're overdue in getting that done. And what I'm suggesting is the two issues, two misunderstandings are very much interrelated. What Johnson puts on display, first of all, is the notion of a Christian nationalism. Oh, God is working, you know, through these particular leaders. God raises up countries, as in Zionism, Christian Zionism, or just Zionism. And so, in addition to being an election denier, a devout Trump supporter, he embodies the right-wing, supposedly Christian, portion of our country. 
his religion and probably the predominant religion of the country, certainly of the Republican Party, I think is a misconstrual of Christianity. It is a misconstrual, though, drawn largely from the book of Romans. Romans misunderstood pictures God working through nation states, raising up national leaders. And all of this is interconnected with a supposed raising up of the state of Israel. Are ethnic Jews, you know, the state of Israel, to be blindly supported as they commit ethnic cleansing? What Amnesty International is calling genocide? As Christians, we have to rethink our role in empire. You know, it was under the darkest of circumstances that Paul is writing this book, after all, and that he outlines the responsibility of Christians to the state. It's during the period in which Nero ruled Rome. Nero's persecuting Christians. And Christians, by their very existence, were thought to be a danger to the empire. And so Paul provides instruction as how to proceed in light of the fact Jesus has been killed by the state of Rome, by the state of Israel. And Paul himself will be shortly murdered. And so in Romans 13, he calls for a response often taken wrongly as acquiescent to the state and its purposes. And so we can't forget, no, the state is not God's plan. The state killed Christ, the state killed Paul, and the state is going to kill all of the apostles we think John survived. The church is made up of those, Paul says in chapter 12, you know, those who are conformed to the image of God. Those who have transformed minds. The power of Christ and the cross is not exercised along with the state by putting people on crosses, but by taking up the cross. And unfortunately, in eagerness, maybe, to exercise power, Christians have sometimes emptied the Christian faith of what its real power consists of, the power of the cross, which is not a dominating power from the top down, but it's actually a subversive, subordinate, but still a disobedient power. This Christianity, I think, that we're experiencing no longer poses any threat or challenge to the state, to the principalities and powers, but it is simply in support of the empire. And what we have to note, God is not working out redemption through the kingdoms of this world. But the kingdoms of this world are under the evil one, Jesus says in Luke 4, 5 to 8. You know, he's shown all the kingdoms of the world. He doesn't challenge the fact that Satan claims control. Paul's own teaching in 2 Corinthians 4 Satan is the god of this world. And he is the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2 too. He's the one behind the rulers. And John concurs with this view and says that the whole world in 1 John 5 1 lies under the power of the evil one. The prophet Hosea condemns even Israel 
and affirms that their rulers are not ordained by God. Hosea 8.4, they have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. In Revelation 13, an evil world government opposed to God and his people is, quote, given authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And this authority blasphemes against heaven and wars on the states. So Paul himself had many troubles, we know, in his missionary travels with worldly rulers. You know, he demands public apology from the local ruling authorities in chapter 9 of Acts. And of course, he's ultimately going to die. He's going to be beheaded because he's disobedient. They would have him stop preaching, and he refuses. Paul, like Christ, is advocating a world revolution on the basis of a kind of jujitsu subordination. This revolutionary subordination will prove subversive to the powers. It's going to upset the traditional roles of men and women, slaves and masters, oppressed and oppressors. And likewise, subordination to the state, it does not mean obedience. This same Roman state that crucified Jesus and which would behead Paul, the idolatry of the state was to be resisted. That is, we don't bow down to Caesar. We don't worship the nation state. But we resist. And so too, slaves would undo slavery. Women would undo oppression. Greeks would no longer be oppressed by Jews. Because we're going to follow the example of Christ. Submitting, yes, in one sense to the powers, but overturning them from the bottom up. Hebrews says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ frees us from the power of capital punishment, the power of the state, the power of slavery, oppression, discrimination, and ultimately death would be endured in light of this disempowerment through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He's founding a new kingdom, a new order of reality, a new kind of power. Christ overturns the kingdoms and the powers, not by outpowering them at the top, but by disempowering them from the grave and emptying out the grave. Christianity is not working through the nation. It is not established, oh, if we can just elect some good Christian politicians. The church only works as long as it is free of the state. And when it becomes confused or fused with the state, I don't believe it's the church. Those Christians who mistake church and state, I'm afraid they've confused Satan and God, Christ and the world. And so also at work in this mistaken interpretive strategy of Romans 13 is the notion, as Mike Johnson describes it, that God ordains certain leaders, certain governments, specific nations to accomplish his will 
And this is in line with his redemptive strategy in and through the church. In other words, the specific ordination of Christ in the church is confused with the ordination of a particular leader. Does that sound a little bit familiar in this time? It's true that God is sovereign. He, yes, indeed, he can and does work through corrupt power structures. But this should not be confused with the redemptive work of Christ. In a sinful and fallen world, God may indeed use the violence of evil men. He may punish evil with evil. We know that a wicked Assyria is used to punish even more idolatrous and wicked nations. But God using a, a nation does not mean that nation is not under the power of evil. Assyria is still evil. His chosen instrument is Assyria or Babylon. But these are not instruments of redemption because they also would be destroyed as will all of the kingdoms of this world. They will all pass into oblivion. None of them are the means by which God is redeeming the world. The church is the only kingdom which is especially founded by God to being an enduring light to the other nations. And by the church we just mean Christians. We mean the people following Christ. So America is not the city set on a hill. It is not the new Jerusalem. Nor is the Jerusalem in Palestine today. This is the exclusive realm of God's own people found in the body of Christ. No nation other than the church fulfills God's eternal or enduring purposes. And to imagine God wants the modern state of Israel to wipe out Palestinians is to relinquish the cross to the sword. Outside of God's own kingdom founded through Christ, yes, God, we might say, is ordering states, but he's not ordaining them. 13.1 says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are ordered. And the ordering here, tasso, is not an ordaining, but a setting in place. God does not intervene in history so as to institute or ordain the powers. He only orders them, or he tells them where they belong. It doesn't mean they'll stay where they belong. And it is a profound misinterpretation to imagine that whatever government exists is ordained by God and should thus be obeyed, as if all governments are providentially established by God. In this understanding, you know, pagan ancient Rome, Saddam Hussein, Donald Trump, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, Khomeini, Emperor Hirohito, well, they must all be there because God put them there. And we Christians then would have to blindly obey which one ever one we might find ourselves living under. Neither the New Testament nor Romans affirms any particular government in this way. Paul did not believe that Nero had been ordained by God to murder Christians. He did not believe that Christians if so ordered, should drive the nails through Jesus' hands and feet. 
He did not believe that a Christian should be the one to behead him, as commanded by the state. And he certainly did not teach that the church should support Israel in its slaughter of Christ, in its slaughter of Christians, or in the present day slaughter of Palestinians and Palestinian Christians. And so taken to an extreme, the idea that Romans 13 is some sort of absolute mandate for obedience. Well, actually, Christ should have remained in the tomb because the Romans put a seal on the rock and that seal was not to be broken. It was illegal for Christ to be raised from the dead. He broke the seal ordering him to be contained in the grave. And the resurrection sets the tone of relationship between human kingdoms and the kingdom of God. The one crucified outside the city is the one who establishes an alternative city through his ultimate act of civil disobedience. The Roman state commanded that Jesus be dead and be silent. And Christianity is founded on the proclamation that Jesus is raised. The first command, you know, given to the apostles by the authorities is that they remain silent about the resurrection. And they said, they informed the powers, we can't do that. We will not obey. And they joyfully submitted. And maybe this is key. They disobeyed, but they submitted to the punishment that was meted out. Which is precisely Paul's point in Romans. Subordination and obedience are two different things. Just as Jesus submitted to the Roman crucifixion as the ultimate act challenging Rome, so too Paul is going to submit to Roman beheading as his final act of subordinate defiance. And so the nature of the Christian revolution is not a violent revolution. But it is an undermining of the powers through submitting, but not succumbing. Jesus refuses to remain in the grave, though he willingly went there. Paul offers his head up to Rome, not in defeat, but by knowing that a, by a man came death in 1 Corinthians 15, and by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. The means and method of human powers is built upon death and the presumption that death is the absolute power wielded by the state. Christians are not in the business of overthrowing the powers through death, through the coercive force of death. As if Christians should obey one government, or maybe just the good ones, and rebel against the other, maybe as in the American Revolution. The resurrection of Jesus turns power on its head, not through a coercive wielding of the sword, but by a blunting of the edge of the sword, relativizing death through resurrection. Jesus allows the state to do its worst and then undermines the power it wields, and Christians continue to defeat the powers on the same basis, resurrection power. The resurrection is not a one-off event after which things go back to normal. One kingdom replacing another, you know, as if that's just an endless warring condition. The church does not do war and violence as it is the kingdom 
that is an enduring kingdom founded upon the resurrection. It endures by placing its security in the hands of God, which is a kind of strange security. God secures his people not through nuclear weapons, not through standing armies, not through secure borders with high walls, but through the security of resurrection in the face of death. And this is not simply a strategy Christians exercise at the end of our lives. Rather, it's our life strategy built upon a prolonged life of civil disobedience in which the power of death exercised by the authorities is continually overthrown. And so when Christians take up the sword to secure themselves, they have abandoned the power of resurrection, the power of Christ, and they've submitted to the power of death. This power of death linked to the power of Satan means that they have retreated from doing the work of God's kingdom. And this is not a middle way in the New Testament in which one can align himself simultaneously with God's kingdom and pledge allegiance at the same time to the kingdoms of this world. This split allegiance, the attempt to be a citizen of heaven while conforming to the patterns of the world, is what the New Testament is aimed at resisting. John calls such Christians who would create this possibility, you know, impersonators, not real Christians. These Gnostics who fully acknowledge, oh, our spirits go to heaven, but our bodies stay on earth. They acknowledge the deity of Jesus. They simply separate it out from the humanity of Jesus. And so following the earthly pattern and being a citizen of heaven, for these fake Christians, this is no problem. And so they can divide their theology and their practice. John calls it a satanic Christianity. It is dubbed the religion of the Antichrist. And I believe we are witnessing the rise of this kind of Antichrist religion in which people imagine they can obtain security and redemption apart from the death and resurrection of Christ. There is only one way to God and it is through Christ Jesus. John warns of the many antichrists that have infiltrated the church in his day. He calls them, you know, these beastly Christians. They have hatred and oppression. They use death and darkness. They disfellowship. They imagine that there is an elite hierarchy with special access to God. And the way they think, you know, picturing Christ as removed from the earthly material realm relegating the kingdom of God to some transcendent realm. He says this form of Christianity is of no earthly good. It is a force for evil and it will result in judgment. He describes those who will shrink away from him in shame at his coming. These Gnostic Christians. And this accords with the judgment scenes of the New Testament. People who claim they know God and yet they are the goats and not the sheep. And so the supreme question determining eternal destiny has to be, what have they done to the least of these? Those who have turned away from the poor, the naked, the hungry, the oppressed, 
They're the ones that God will turn away from. And so as Christians, I think we're faced with a profound kind of Constantinian Christianity in which the state and the church are fused. Maybe it even outstrips the problem of the early church. We must turn firmly away from the means and method and violence of empire. We are not seeking power and security through tight borders, through strong military, through harsh treatment of the world's refugees. The danger is that in aligning with the oppressive powers which would turn away the poor, which would abolish and ethnically cleanse our fellow Christians, Christians have joined forces with this counter-kingdom. The Christian agenda of peace and the agenda of empire, these are at cross-purposes. They cannot be melded. Christian peace cannot have common cause with the powers that would put a jackboot on the neck of the oppressed. We must not, in seeking to overcome evil, become evil. We must continue to resist the powers of death by being resistant communities built upon the power of resurrection. And this is an apocalyptic message of Paul and the New Testament that we proclaim. There is an alternative kingdom built on life and resurrection, displacing death, violence, the nation state. The peaceable kingdom has open borders, calling to the poor, the oppressed, and the broken, that healing is to be had in Christ alone. Here alone we have found peace, and we want to share that peace with all the peoples of the earth. This is the business that we are about as the Christian people of God. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.